started out with the intention of talking about agents and why you need them, what to look for. But my conversation with Michael Griffo, who also writes as Michael Falco and J.D. Griffo, turned into so much more. So sit back and listen to my conversation with Michael Griffo, where we touch on Positano, Italy, on agents, on so much in the book writing industry. Hello, hello. I'm Melissa Bourbon, and this is the Writer Spark podcast where business, creativity, and the craft of writing converge. Welcome. 15 years ago, I was an avid reader, but not a writer. I didn't know anything about the actual craft, and I knew next to nothing about the publishing industry. But I had a dream to become a published author, and I set out to learn everything I could. Now, I'm a number one Amazon and national best-selling author of more than 35 novels. I've published traditionally, and I recently plunged into the world of indie publishing. And I teach people like you how to grow in their craft and find success in this ever-changing industry. I'm an ordinary person, a wife, a mom, a daughter, a teacher, living in a small North Carolina town. Through Spark, I am doing what I love more than anything in the world, which is teaching and helping others on their writing journeys. I'm here as your partner, as you navigate your own writing journey. I'm here to help you understand the essential elements of the writing craft, to build your confidence, and to help you find the success you desire. Welcome to the Writer Spark Podcast. Well, let's jump into our conversation. So first, um, welcome, Michael Griffo. So is that your actual name? My actual name is Michael Griffo. Okay. I am writing the Bria Bartolucci mystery series under Michael Falco. Right. I have written the Ferrara Family Mystery Series under J.D. Griffo. Right. I have some young adult supernatural as Michael Griffo. So we're, if you go to Amazon and you type in Griffo, Michael, you'll find me. Okay. All right. Good. <laughs> my website as well. You know, so. Okay, so I like to start with a little bit about your origin story. So our topic today is going to be talking about agents. Do you need them? How to get them? What to look for? Just kind of uh, that direction. But before we get there, I'd love to hear a little bit about your origin story. How did you get started in writing? And then specifically, you know, cozy mysteries or, you know, this this type of lighter mystery. Happy murders, I like to call them. Oh, I like that. Happy murders. <laughs> yeah. That's fun. That's fun. Um, I have always written something. I've always been writing plays, short stories, whatever it might be. I think that's a lot. I think that's a case for a lot of writers um, before they even know that they want to try to write a book or embark on a potential writing career. They're doing it on their own. And that's what I did. I The one piece of advice that I give to anyone, save what you write. <laughs> I didn't. And I, oh, it's, it's such a sin because I have a lot. Um, and I did used to write things for friends. Like I would, I remember I gave my aunt Marie when she was unemployed, it was like the unemployed person's guide to life. Um, and, and she passed away two years ago and her daughter, it was, she saved it. Oh, wow. So it was really sweet. Um, so I have that and I have a few other things, but I have plays. I remember I wrote a play, um, when I was 11, 
um, unexpected company about aliens who crash a birthday party. I saw that on your website, on your bio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, I don't know where it is. I don't know. I, I, I got an A on it. I, <laughs> I just don't remember. Um, and I do remember I wrote something about triplets and it was a murder mystery. And my teacher thought I plagiarized it. Because she said it's too complex and too good. And I said, well, I'm a good writer. (laughs) (laughs) This is my 10th grade self. Um, I can't remember that story other than the fact that um, it was one person, but they were identical triplets and murder ensued. Um, So I... Then I went to college. I was a journalism major. I never took a creative writing class. I don't know why. It's one of those things where I do think sometimes we can be our own worst enemy in that if you don't seek advice or take advice, which can be the case when you're 17, 18, you're like, I know everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Well, so I, I don't think I, you missed much. I did. I took one creative writing class in college and I got a B minus. And I wrote a story about how I helped my roommate move the vehicle of her boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, who had wronged her from one parking lot to another. He left his keys in the car and she's like, let's, let's play this prank on him. But I had to drive because she didn't know how to drive a manual. And I did. <laughs> And we wore gloves, except, you know, this was the 80s and she wore fingerless gloves like Madonna (laughs) rifled through the glove box and found things that she that got her very upset. I'm like, but you've been in this car. You've been you know, I mean, I don't understand. Right. So, of course, it took him all of two seconds to figure out that she was the one behind it. And he was a law student. So, of course, he threatened her and she fessed up immediately because she had worn these fingerless gloves. So I turned that into this story. A TA read it because uh, we had these TA sections mm-hmm. and he gave me, I don't know what he gave me on that, like a B minus, I think. And he said, next time, make sure you write what you know. And I was like, what? <laughs> you are kidding. Um, I lived it. Yes. Yeah. And I was like, that's it. I'm never writing anything creative again. And I didn't for a long, long time, like two decades, yeah. probably. <laughs> Oh, wow. It's so weird, that phrase, write what you know. It just flies in the face of creative writing. Now, I understand write what you know, maybe if you, I don't know, if you have absolutely no experience or if you are simply, um, you find it daunting and you you can't uh, come up with anything. Okay, take a story and just write your own story. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. But if you're a writer who has an idea and has the confidence to just do it without any worry of, oh, I must get this published because that'll cripple you, mm-hmm. just just do it. It doesn't yeah. matter. I mean, look at all the fantasy writers and horror writers. God, I hope the horror writers aren't writing what they know. Uh, right. <laughs> you know, sci-fi. I mean, clearly that's the, the worst advice ever to write yeah, what it's, you know. It's so weird. So, so I... um. So I just have one, I'm one of those people who ricocheted all over the place. I always marvel at somebody who knows what they want to do when they're in college and they, they do it and they have this illustrious career. That is not me. Um, I worked at a magazine um, and I was working at, I was working at an ad agency actually. And then I decided to quit because I got a chance to be in the chorus of Hello Dolly in a community theater. (laughs) Oh, fun. 
<laughs> exactly. So I quit my job and I did that. Um, and then I start. I did some acting, and but I'm not a night person, so it's a, it was a little bit of an odd choice. But it's something I needed to do. And what's you know what I always say is I can speak in front of a crowd of thousands of people with no script and not be nervous. So that's what I learned by doing the acting. Mm-hmm. But what I did was. I literally, I was away in the summer at um, the Broadway Rose Theater in Tigard, Oregon. It's still around. We were the um, inaugural season and everybody was a night owl. So they would go out really late at night and do what you do. And I would get up early. And for whatever reason, um, I said, oh, I'm going to write a book. (laughs) Okay. So it's one of those things where... Clearly, it was always in my head. I don't know why I ever did it. Um, so it is my first book called Hold Back the Night. I It's never been published. I, I would love to see it someday. I do have to gussy it up a little bit. But I call it a... Um, I'm dating myself. It's Dark Shadows meets Knott's Landing. Oh, I love I love Knott's Landing, too. <laughs> like we can talk. That's another podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And it's um, so it's a gothic soap opera, you know, um, the four four year old boy is kidnapped 14. No, I'm sorry. Um, 15 years later, he the the kidnapper decides to bring him back to the family. And of course, the kidnapper is a vampire. So of course, <laughs> of course. So there you go. But I do love it. I people have read it. They love it. Um, it's written in a little bit of a funky style. But that's the first. Uh, I wrote it like an episodic, almost uh-huh. like a TV show. Every chapter is broken down into like little sub chapters. You should put it you on know. Vela on uh, the Amazon period serial program they have. I Vela. Yeah. I don't even know if I know about that. Sometimes I don't. I just. That's a great idea. Thank you. I will look into that. I just, I submitted something where I, I posted something at Wattpad. Mm-hmm. So I did that. So I was thinking of doing it there, but Vela might be more appropriate if it's serialized because that's exactly what this is. Yeah. It's, it's like I, I haven't whole- done it. I don't know a lot about it, but I do know people who have done it. And that's my understanding of it is that you release things sort of, you know, as you're going or as, you know, in, in chunks. And that's, oh. that's the whole purpose. And you get people waiting for for the next installment. <laughs> well, we were going to have to try that. Hold back the night, people. Yeah. You heard it here first. Okay. <laughs> so, um, you know, I like I said, I was writing some plays. I actually had some plays produced throughout the country. Nothing crazy. Um, but my, I wrote some short plays. They got, um, they won some competitions. I'm in a couple anthologies. And then I just transitioned over and decided, you know, to write this book. And, I, let's see, what was I doing? I think I just, I had an idea for a book and I was very cocky and I said, I'm only writing five chapters and that's it until I get an agent. <laughs> Again, the ignorance, uh-huh. you know, um, I was so ignorant. I didn't even know that when you had to write the outline, it was in prose. It was a narrative. It wasn't bullet point like you did in college. I didn't know any of that either. I did it all wrong out of the gate. Yep. So my first outline was nice bullet points and I thought it was so great. Um, So I sent, I had this idea for a vampire, um, young adult supernatural. I sent it out and I sent it 
I was very lucky. I was very lucky. I sent it out to seven agents. One took a bite. He's been my agent, Evan Marshall. Um, it's great. And he sold it to Kensington Books, where it has been my literary home. So that's the and- Ferrara family? Series? No, that's actually um, the Archangel Academy series. Oh. That was um, the Young Adult Supernatural Vampires. Oh, okay, uh, gotcha. Yeah, that's written under Michael Griffo, um, Unnatural, Unwelcome, Unafraid. Okay. I love those titles. Um, so I was doing that. And then, you know, I did another series for them, another YA series, The Darkborn Legacy, um, which I... Write what you know. I wrote in the first person as a 16-year-old girl. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> and I decided, because I had read The Hunger Games, I'm going to do it in the f- present tense, which I've never done before. Mm-hmm. So be careful what you wish for, because 1,200 pages later, three books, I'm still the 16-year-old girl. In it's her voice. It was very interesting. But I did it. Um, my editor, John Scott Emilio, said to me, um, have you ever written a mystery, like a cozy mystery? I wasn't even entirely sure what it was. I wasn't um, either. I tell that story. My agent said the same thing. You should, you have a voice for the cozies. I was like, what's a cozy? <laughs> no idea. Exactly. <laughs> and yeah, he said the same thing too, because he said, you know, you do have like the, 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 um, um, I sprinkled the, the supernatural stories with humor with some lightness because it gets too dark, right. you, you know? So I think there's a balance there, but he said the same thing. He's like, you have that lightness mm-hmm. and you can write these complex layered stories, i.e. a mystery. But for whatever reason, I don't know about you, but I was like, oh, I can't write a mystery. <laughs> yeah. I was like, that I can't do that. That's for... Other people, I just, you know, the red herrings and the the clues, and I just didn't think I could do it. My entree was when, and I don't remember if I realized it. I think it might have just come to me. I love soap operas. Mm-hmm. I read that about and, you, yes. <laughs> yeah. I just realized that A Cozy Mystery is a soap opera. Oh, yeah. It's, it's the same setting. Uh-huh. It's one location. It's the same cast of core characters Mm -hmm. you bring new characters in each book and there's a murder in every book so there's a different plot yeah it's um i don't know if anybody remembers the edge of night a daytime soap opera Mm -hmm. if you don't look it up it was the best it was a mystery soap opera um it, it started in the 50s i believe and You know, uh, they used to say that it was geared towards men because, you know, a little sexist comment, but it was cops and robbers a lot. And there was a detective, Monticello, Ohio, I think is where it took place. Um, And it was just murder after murder after murder. Really? I did not know that. I watched General Hospital and I don't, it's from a friend that I got hooked on General Hospital. So I arranged some of my college classes around General Hospital. That is terrifying to say, <laughs> to reflect upon. But that's that's the only one I really got into. You're not alone. Luke and Laura. <laughs> yes, Luke and Laura. Luke Luke just retired. Um, Laura's still on the show. Oh, we, is she really? Yeah, yeah. Is she still uh, married to number one from Star Trek? <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's nice to hear. Yeah. What's his name? Um. Yeah. She's married to him. Okay. In real good. Life. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Um. Je- um. In I'm from the East Coast. Um. 
Edge of Night was on right after um, General Hospital. Okay. So I, it was on at like four o'clock. So I would try to make sure that I got home. And if I didn't, we lived with my nan at the time, my mother's mother, my grandmother, and she would fill me in on what happened because she would watch the show. Um, <laughs> if I had something to do, which was something to bond with nan over. <laughs> oh, that's what everybody did. Um, somebody said that once, but it really, I mean, you could, families could talk about the problems that the soap opera characters were having easier than they could talk about their own. Oh yeah. I can see that. That makes total sense. And they really did bond over their stories, as they said. In any event, once I realized that what my editor was asking me to write was nothing more than a soap opera, which, circling back to one of the things that I no longer have, I wrote what they call a Bible to a soap opera when I was in high school. And the Bible of any daytime soap, I don't know about the night times, maybe the same thing, but a daytime soap always had a Bible, which was six months to a year of the plot hmm. written out in an outline or a story form, whatever it was. And I wrote that for secrets. That was my... Oh, yeah. That I read that nice. in your bio, too. Hot <laughs> so on every page, I'm sure. So much conflict. <laughs> Oh, oh, but I do remember some of the character names and it was just so cool. I really loved it. It was big. It was like a really thin, it was a couple hundred, it was like over 200 pages, you know, it was a year out of the story. And I was, I think I was about 17 when I did it. So in any event, um, so now I'm reliving my childhood dream of being a soap opera head writer. There you go. And in Italy, no less. In Italy. Yeah. Um, Which is great. It's just pretty amazing. He, um, it was their suggestion, mm-hmm. um, my editor's suggestion to do something in Italy, mm-hmm. stemming from my the Ferrara family cozy series. So the Ferraras were the first cozies I wrote, mm-hmm. um, Murder on Memory Lake, and all of those. That's the first cozy that takes place in New Jersey, in a real town called Tranquility, um, which is one of those things. I'm sure you do this. I was driving by antiquing and I saw this little sign for Tranquility to the right, and I'm like, oh, like, great name, <laughs> gonna use it. Well, I did that. I didn't do that. I didn't do the swerve. And let's find out until much later. But I'm like, oh, name. And as I'm driving, yeah. I'm like trying to write you know tranquility down on a notepad so i remember it um and um what i created of tranquility actually turned out to be very much of the town it's a lakeside town the sort of a throwback not necessarily to like a mayberry but it is a small town in northern new jersey in the antiquing area um so i wrote those and it's italian american women i call it Golden Girls meets Nancy Drew because it's so three fun. Old, it is fun. It is. It's like three old Italian ladies and the granddaughter. And and I blatantly stole from Sophia because <laughs> uh, you know, if you're gonna steal, steal Sophia. So Alberta Ferrara Scaglione, the protagonist, her older sister Helen is a former nun and she's cranky. <laughs> <laughs> well, those make the best characters. Some of her lines, and you know, I don't know if you do this, but I really will say, oh my God, so Helen says this, get this, and isn't it hysterical? And my friends are always like, well, yes, but you wrote that. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I'm like, well, yeah, but no, Helen wrote, she said it in my head. I didn't write it. 
anyway, um, so maybe that's, you know, the ego talking, but I really do think she's hilarious. So I think from that, a natural progression was, let's go to Italy and do another series. Um, so that's how that evolved. And what I wanted to do was, the, the Ferrara family is a traditional cozy. It's light. Um, it's a little over the top in the things that your protagonist does. You know, yeah. these people who have no training whatsoever suddenly outsmart the cops and everyone turns to them. And and they're the ones who, you know, always the dead body seems to be at their door or they're the first one to come upon it. So it's a little stretch of the imagination. Um, but with the new series, um, it's a little more grounded. It's a, I, a little more, um, the emotional arc will be a little, I don't want to say serious, but more realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, Bria Bartolucci is a 32-year-old widow, has an eight-year-old boy. Her husband died about six, seven months ago. They were going to open up a bed and breakfast. She's going to continue on with that dream after some mental struggle of what to do. Mm-hmm. And she finds a dead body in one of the guest rooms right before she's going to, you know, open up the place, which as you do, as I said, you know, so the, with the Ferraris, I mean, the whole thing was Alberta is 65 years old and her, it was her journey to become an independent woman because she went from living at home to living with her husband. Now she's a widow and she's on her own for the first time at 65. Bria, a little similar, but you know, quite different is alone without her husband who um, she adored. Mm -hmm. And what does she do? You know, for a job, for a companion. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, so hopefully the readers will go on this emotional journey. I will say that I cried several times during book two. Oh, wow. (laughs) Okay, good. Which I'm like, all right, that's interesting. And the same places as well. You know, you know, when you're reading your stuff, when, when you're going through it, sometimes when you just, when you're just reading it, just to make sure it flows, you're not so critical, mm-hmm. you know, with the pen marking it all up, you kind of lose yourself, hopefully. Um, and that's what I did in a couple passages. I was like, oh. I think if we can make ourselves laugh or cry or feel anything, you know, unexpectedly, then we're doing a good job and the readers are going to feel it too. I think that's the key unexpectedly. Um, That's why one of the things I learned is, um, and again, I always go back to, because I have a full-time job, my time is limited. Mm -hmm. Um, I make sure that I carve in at least two weeks between edits Mm -hmm. because you have to let your mind forget it. Yep. Go off, do something else. Even if you're writing something else, I mean, preferably you're not doing anything like that. So those juices aren't working. Then when you go back, you're fresh and it's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I forgot that. I'm happily surprised by this. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Or you do what I did with the um, rewrite. You chop out three chapters and cut like 30 pages out of it and to make it even better. So that's good. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I have the same process. You've got to let it sit before you come back to it so you can have fresh eyes. Exactly. Do you use beta readers? Um. No, not anymore. I mean, early on, uh, we I had a critique group, so oh, we cool. had each other, and I guess in a sense they were beta readers. Now I have 
uh, proofreaders who are people oh, that I become, you know, friends with who are just started as readers. And they're um, because I do some indie publishing now, too. So I'm hybrid. So I have my my traditional way. I've been with St. Martin's. I've been with Berkeley and then I've been with Kensington. But then I also got the rights back to a series, my Penguin series. So that I've indie published. But so when I and then I have another series that's straight indie. And okay. so as I'm writing new books, either for that or the one I got the rights back to, I have these proofreaders that are the final stop because I am not a detail person. So I miss those things, although I am such a fan of Grammarly. Love it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But no, so no, to answer your question, not really beta readers to, you know, test the mystery of the book itself, but just the proofreaders for that last stop. Oh, cool. No, I, I asked because I was at a cozy con, a Kensington cozy con in South Carolina, and everybody was talking at the beta readers. And I was literally doing that fake smile because I had no idea what they were talking about. Oh, is this the <laughs> Charleston where we met? That's where we met. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I was like, beta readers, I have no idea what they're talking about. And I was just like, mm -hmm, saying to myself, and then I <laughs> realized I don't have a beta reader. No. I mean, I have... Yeah, I don't even think I you I didn't even hand it off to somebody. And again, I guess it was timing. I was just like, well, I own, you know, it's it's my work. I have to stand behind it. If I don't think it's good, I'm not going to submit it. And I thought it was good enough and I did. So I thought that was interesting that I that I didn't have that. I am very detailed. Mm -hmm. Um I actually over the pandemic while I didn't have a lot to do with my job, um I took a copy editing and proofreading class. I got a certificate. Oh, and that was smart. Yeah. It, you know, it's, um, I was like, okay, well, if I lose my job and I need to do something from home, I sort of have these natural skills, mm -hmm. um, not really tested. So I took this as pointers, P O Y N T E R pointers Institute, which I thought was really quite good, mm -hmm. reasonably priced. Um, very, very thorough. It was all online, mm -hmm. you know, which I kind of wanted a little more zoom, but the way of the world is online. Mm -hmm. Um, there were people there who I could talk to, but I am that person. Like I will, always correct emails and I mean I, I do that too but I think with my own work I get too close to it and I yeah. know the story so I just end up skipping over things into my head and missing those little mistakes so yeah and that we all do but you know interesting that you gravitated toward that as sort of a you know potential side hustler option yeah. down the line and I I do freelance editing but I do developmental and line editing and then newly branching into cover design. So those are my wheelhouse. Oh, so wow. it's great that, you know, we find our, what, what we're good at and pursue that. Interesting. That's very interesting. I love the cover art. Um, I love in your contract you get, I don't know about you, but I get a creative consultation. Means nothing. Yeah, right. <laughs> Every I've even stopped offering suggestions because they do such a better job than I do. Yeah. They'll ask me, of course, you know, for a summary of the plot so they could formulate something. But I love the cover of the new book, Murder in an Italian Village. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely gorgeous. I blew it up into a little poster. There, there it is. is. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. It's just so beautiful. Yeah. Oh, and we can um, the full. Ah, there you go. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Um, I, 
even the um the uh, natural the the young adult supernatural stuff the cozy mysteries for the ferraris i love them all mm-hmm. i love them all so i just let them do their thing and i just say oh my god you're magicians yeah. it's beautiful <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, you get the cover proof, and they're like, "What do you think? What's your, you know, any thoughts?" Doesn't matter. (laughs) Doesn't matter (laughs) exactly. Does it really matter? (laughs) You know, and you you know, there nothing has ever been. um, I've never not liked to cover. Same. Yeah, I've always been really happy with mine. Yeah, I mean, I even like the font that they use. You know, on all of them, they're all a little bit different mm-hmm. and very, and they, they create, you know, this little world among themselves. It's great. I love it. Yeah. They're good at what they do. They are. Today's episode is brought to you by Writer Spark Academy's Field Guide to Writing a Cozy Mystery. Are you a fan of cozy mystery novels? Have you always wanted to try your hand at writing one yourself? Look no further. Writer Spark Academy's Field Guide to Writing a Cozy Mystery Masterclass is the ultimate course for aspiring cozy mystery authors. With case file video lessons about the mystery genre, how to set up a cozy mystery, the hook, the setting, the sleuth, including background, talents, strengths, skills, and disparities, creating the crime, the victim, the villain, supporting characters, clues and red herrings, and so much more. If you are interested in writing a cozy mystery, this course is for you. Check it out. The link is in the show notes. So I guess we should talk a little bit about the topic we were going to talk about, which is what was agents. That? What was- <laughs> So, um, so yeah, let's talk just for a little bit about agents. The, do you need them? How do you get them? What to look for? I had, um, I told this story recently too. I, when I was submitting, I think I probably had 25 or 30 rejections on my first novel with agents. And then at the same time, I got an offer from two and one was a smaller boutique agency and it was her agency and then the other was an agent in a big agency and I did not know a thing and I listened to the advice of the people around me and the Romance Writers of America group because that was the only organization that was near where I was and everybody said go with the big agency go with that one and it's hard for me to say I regret that decision because I'm happy with where I am right now but in hindsight, I think it would have been smarter to go with the other who was much more enthusiastic about my work, what I wrote as it was. The other agent wanted it to go more romance and less mystery. So I revised the mystery out of it and she never could sell it. After a year, we parted ways. I went with somebody else and not the other one, but somebody altogether oh. different and took it back to mystery to what it was because it had stopped being my book. Right. And she sold it within three months. So, you know, my my big takeaway from that was to, number one, go with my gut. And number two, listen with a grain of salt to what people are telling you, because you have to look at their motives and their background and their, you know, schema and why they're telling you that. And if it's a valid, you know, thought or reason. Spot on. It's exactly everything you said I agree with. Um, My background, just so you know, um, I am an agent, but for theatrical designers. So I represent the people who uh, design the sets, costumes, lights, sound, and projections for Broadway shows, plays, and I didn't even know they had agents. Oh, yeah, big time. It's a big... Everybody's got an agent. Everybody's got an agent. No matter... If you do anything creative, 
anything at all creative, you got an agent um, or, or anybody who has to have a contract negotiated. So I did. So, so I, I, I kind of fell into it. I was working in the business affairs department of a big agency um, and segued into this role. So I have a, I have an understanding of that. I don't deal with writers, um, but it, it's basically the same world. Um, and you are correct. The one thing to note, you, you need to have a special relationship with the um, agent directly, mm-hmm. but you also need to know what the agent's agency has to offer. So if you are looking to make a move up, you're going to want to go with a bigger agency. You're going to want to go with an agency that maybe has um, a speaking bureau um, agents where you can do public speaking as well. If you're also a playwright, you want to go with an agency that has a theater division, a theater department. So you could cross departments and not just stay in your lane. Um, as far as in the specific agent, you want somebody who believes in you, yeah, who believes in your writing and who believes in your career. Because everybody, if you write a book and for whatever reason it hits the zeitgeist, as they say, and it's really special, only because of the topic or or the message, the theme of the book, okay, they're probably going to sell that. And they may sell it for a lot of money. But if they don't like your writing and if they don't like your voice, they're not going to be able to sell anything else of yours because they're not going to care. They're going to work on their mm-hmm. other clients and they're not going to be behind you. They're not going to support you. Um, yeah. Because I don't know about you, but most of, you know, when you're with the publisher, the publisher does a lot as far as publicity, but not everything. You got to do it all on your own. I think Kensington is particularly good with their publicity department. I think they're very dedicated and much more so than the other two publishers I've been with. I've been really happy with them. Yeah. Shout out to Larissa Ackerman, who is publicity for the Cozy Mystery. She really has turned it around. She's really, like I said, the thing we just had at Michigan, Brighton, Michigan, with um, two dandelions bookstore. Shout out Mm -hmm. to them. They were wonderful. And the reason is because they care. They actually care about the product. They care about the authors and they really want, it's not just about selling numbers of books. It's Mm -hmm. about getting the right fans, the right readers to come to these events, partnering with the right bookstores who really support this, you know, and creating a community. Um, So, but going back to a lot of people do ask, you know, um, I want an agent. What do I do? Well, are you sure you need an agent? Because an agent really, it's a business. So they want to make money off of you. So if you don't have anything to offer them, you don't need an agent. Mm -hmm. You need to have a book that's finished at least in your mind, um, before you can start submitting, it's always going to have a little rewrite. They, they may change it. Like you said, they may change. They may say, I, I really like your characters. I hate your story. I don't yeah. really, I've heard that. Before. Yeah. Um, add some romance, add some sex, take the mystery out. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, can we put an alien in there? <laughs> you know, yeah. um, or a vampire. <laughs> or a vampire. Yeah. I want some vampires. 
Um, but uh, but I'm into World War II history. I know, but throw in a vampire. Um, so you got to make sure you got to be confident with yourself. You have to know yourself. Where are you as a writer? Do you really need an agent? And sometimes you don't. Um, if you're going to do the indie publishing, if you want to do the self-publishing, you don't need an agent. You're doing it all on your own. Right. I mean, it's a whole nother world out there now. And you really have to to know, to to really think about and figure out what are your goals. And do you need that agent or is indie publishing what you really want? Do you want to give everything away in the control or do you want, are you a control person like I am and you want to retain that? That's one thing I love about indie publishing. So you, you have to really evaluate what you want out of the process and what your end goal is. I, I agree. And what you should really do before you do anything, you should try to go online and find a publishing contract template because there's a lot of language in there that you don't understand. You might think mm-hmm. you do, but you don't. Like you don't understand sub rights. You don't understand electronic rights. Um, and there are a lot of, if you're with a big, um, <clears throat> excuse me, if you sell to one of the big three, they're going to take everything. Most, unless you are Janet Ivanovich or maybe Joanne Fluke, like if you're the top dog in your arena, you're not going to be able to reserve, which means hold back and keep for yourself the electronic rights, which are TV and movie option rights. And also, you know, thinking about the digital rights, it's for eBooks too. So I, I, um, got the rights back to my very first series and I ended up turning around and selling it kind of against my agent's wishes. She was not really a, a fan of this idea to a small publisher who asked what they were seeking is books that had been previously published that people had the rights back to. And I mean, it was the worst contract ever. You know, when you, when they lump in the digital rights for the eBooks, you may never get the rights back your books if they if that's how they offer them and they're looking at sale quantity of sales or or how much you're making in any given time period you know you've got to really look at those details and figure out you really you know if that's worth it because the only thing that the writer has is really their intellectual property their content they have they own that they own the copyright on that but you sell away the rights when you go to a publisher um and it's a Mm -hmm. trade-off you know Mm -hmm. you if you think that you can do it on your own which my hat's off to anybody who really makes it big in the indie world because it is tough it is overcrowded it is there is just a surplus of Anything you want is out there. How you, what's the, what's that phrase? How you cut the surface and, and get a spotlight on you. I I don't, there, there's no magic trick. It's, it's really a lot of luck. Um, Mm -hmm. And you have to do all the marketing by yourself. The the trade-off is you own all of the rights. So if you hit it big Mm -hmm. and if it goes to option, um, which really means nothing, if you're ever lucky enough for your book is optioned to be turned into a play, a movie, a TV series, do not get excited because the option simply means the buyer has an option to do that. They're not right taking it off the market for anybody correct. else. They're right? not guaranteeing until they pay you the purchase price. And even when they pay the purchase price, there is no guarantee they are going to turn it into a TV or a movie or a, a TV yeah. series or a movie. It's. I have a friend who wrote a. It's a nonfiction book on the Wasp, the women uh, fighter pilots of World War II, okay. and it was optioned before it was even published. Yep. 
And it's, that was, God, it's been like six or seven years and they're still in the, it's probably been re-optioned because I believe they are moving forward with it, but it is such a lengthy process. And then you look at what's available to watch and it's so much crap. And you're like, how did that get made? But this isn't getting made. It's such a mystery. It, it is the mystery that will, you, if you dwell on it, you will lose your mind because yes. I almost have. Like you watch yeah. these things and five minutes in, you're like, seriously, that's on yeah. TV and my books have not made it. It's exactly, it's, you know, and it really isn't, um, yeah, there's a little ego involved, of course, you know, like mine is just as good. And it probably is. Your books are just as good, Melissa. It's like, why Why aren't they out there? Um, mm-hmm. It's a crapshoot. It's just yeah. a crapshoot. Um, yeah. But it's really important because I used to do, I used to be in the book to film department and authors would call up all the time. So what do you think? Blah, blah, blah. Do you think it's going to be turned? Do you, what do you think they're going to really make it this time? And I would tell them each and every time I said, accept your option payment, your first option and forget about it be happy yeah. with it. Clock it. Yeah. You know, they they always have to clock, you know, they have the option for probably 12 to 18 month period. There's a built-in option extension period where they can um, re-up if they want re-up. to. Mm-hmm. There are some books went for 22 option periods. I remember it, wow. it was insane. Um, the good news is that not to get too far into the weeds, but your first the first option payment is typically applicable against the purchase price when they finally buy it. Typically, any option extension payment is not applicable. So that's just, they're just paying you extra money. Um, Bonus. And, and, you know, depending on if it's Sony Pictures or if it's a division of um, Paramount, they have the money and they're going to do it if they really want it. Um, Mm -hmm. While they're doing it, while they're doing the option, they're basically um, trying to find a screenwriter. They're looking at the scripts that come through. They're trying to get financing. They're trying to get an actor. All of that takes some time. So Mm -hmm. you do need to be aware of it. Sometimes they'll ask you for a free extension if they have one actor, but they need another. If they have almost all their money, you have to play, you know, if you think it's in good faith, you go for it. But it's something that you need to know. And you got to make sure that your agent knows this. So ask those questions. Um, And then the whole world of sub rights, which are like the foreign rights, the library, the mm-hmm. large print, the ebook. You just go online. I mean, um, people have asked me questions. A lot of times, younger people. And I'm like, dude, you have the internet. You scour the internet for everything. Type in publishing contract, things I need to know if I'm going to get an agent. It's all out there. It's, it's not mm-hmm. rocket science. And you don't need to understand everything, but you need to be a, you need to have a familiarity with these things and you need to know what's important to you. I did um, a little short story there. I have a short story out in um, Assemble Media's anthology. Um I think if you type in Assemble Media Anthology Summer 2023, my story divine is in there. And this is a company, there are a few of them out there. They commission writers to write short stories with the premise. The only premise is to get it turned into a full-length novel, a, a film, or a TV series. And so you're writing pretty much two 
a C-level executive or a producer. And it's interesting. It was a fascinating journey for me. Um, So the contract sucked. It was the worst. And I'm talking to the guy and he's like, you're asking really great questions. And I'm like, dude, I was an agent. Like, I know this contract is horrible. They, I couldn't even get write a first refusal, which means, you know, I'm the first person they go to, to write the screenplay. I couldn't even get a, a script treatment. I couldn't even get that I'd be in the room to talk to the potential producers because I have no background as a screenwriter. It doesn't matter that I've written plays. It doesn't matter that I've written novels. I have first right of refusal to turn it into a novel if somebody wants it, which is great. Mm -hmm. And you participate financially at, at some level, which is great. But I really wanted the opportunity to be there. So it was, it was a leap of faith. Um, they had reached out to me because they there was an article that I wrote, literally, how soap operas helped me write a cozy mystery with, um, I think it was a Dynasty, Joan Collins and Crystal um, Linda Evans on the cover. And mm-hmm. they saw that. They reached out to me because that's the type of story they wanted, which was really flattering. Um, they're wonderful. It was really hands-on, creative editing. I learned so much. But when it came down to the brass tacks of, you know, giving me these rights, it wasn't going to happen. So I had to take a leap of faith, which I did. And it, I think it paid out. Um, I said, not a worry. If if the produ- if any producer is that interested in this short story, I'm hoping they're going to want me in the room, the writer of it, at least to hear what I have to say. It might not go anywhere because I don't. That's the other thing you have to realize you don't have all the writing skills just because you wrote a novel doesn't mean you can write a screenplay. Right. Yeah. I was determined to crack the nut and write a Hallmark Christmas script. Oh, (laughs) I don't know. Do you watch them? No, I don't have a Hallmark channel, so I really don't, but I've seen a few here and there. I don't watch them. I I don't, I'm not their audience though. Mm -hmm. I watch Young and the Restless every day and some of the soap stars are on those things. So I watched it for that. But I was determined to write this thing and I had a pen and paper and I took notes while I was watching because they're very, very specific. And um, there are like 57 scenes in the the show. Um, It's every... Um, every right before every commercial break, it's what they call an act. So it's nine acts. They're very specific with the hero's journey, using that mm-hmm. phrase like where the heroine mainly. Um, when does she meet the guy? When does she fall flat on her face? When does she have to rise up? When is all that stuff? It is very specific. I won't say that it's complicated, but there is a formula to it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm very proud to say that I cracked the nut for that and I did it, but I have a friend who's an, uh, an agent. No one will, I can't even get anyone to read them. Huh. Yeah. Ho- um, what did I write? Hollywood, um, holiday high school reunion. It writes itself. No, <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> yeah. like, come on, what do you want? Nobody wants it. Um, so it's, it's, um, it's just sobering and it's a reality. They don't care. You know, you don't have experience doing this. So it's going to take a, it's going to take some time to break through and to be noticed. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the other thing to bring to your agent. Find out what your agent does. Do they have connections in 
LA, in the film world, in the TV world, if those are your aspirations, if you want to be a screenwriter, it's it's totally different muscles. Go take a mm-hmm. class. You have to learn the basics because it is a formula, um, regardless of what you're writing, unless you're just so creatively intuitive and you get it, God bless you. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing to really remember is the main difference between um, writing a screenplay and writing a play and to an extent writing a novel, it's a work for hire. You own no rights on your screenplay. You submit it. The The studio owns the copyright. So on, you have to make sure that in your contract, there are um, financial remuneration for if it becomes a um, sequel, if it gets remade, if they take your characters, all of that kind of stuff, because oftentimes you'll get nothing. So um, you may not even get a credit. If you write the script and they bring in a mm-hmm. script doctor who rewrites it, that person may get the script because it's all the Writers Guilds of America rules. Isn't that, I'm partially why Sue Grafton said she would never sell her books to be made into films because she didn't want to lose that control. She didn't want Kinsey Milhone to become something that that she hadn't divined. A hundred percent. She passed away, right, Sue Grafton? Right, yeah. Um, she probably, I would be really surprised if her agent couldn't have negotiated something where she has creative control. Now, I mean, she mm-hmm. was never as big as J.K. Rowling, who had creative control. I mean, she mm-hmm. famously said that the actors had to be British. All of the actors mm-hmm. in her right. films. I don't know what other... I honestly don't remember if she wrote the screenplay. I don't think she did. Um, maybe she did, but she had a lot of control, as does somebody like uh, a James Patterson, I believe, and I think Harley Copen, who went a different route and now has like this huge deal with Netflix. Again, I don't know the specifics, of course, about his contract, but I would hazard to guess he has more than typical um, creative control. But yes, exactly, because they'll just take that character and they will make it whatever they want. And unfortunately, what we've learned is, and, and I will ignorantly say that I'm a little shocked by this because I never really, as a guy, never focused in the way they treat women and and female characters of fiction it's it's abhorrent it, it, it's really abhorrent um so you have to be very protective and it's the flip side you're a new writer you have no leverage mm-hmm. you got no leverage so what do you do maybe you take a gamble let them have what it is get as much input as you possibly can get Hope that it's successful. Now you have a track record. So your next deal is a little bit more in your favor. Hmm. You know, that's- yeah, it's it's an interesting business. You know, there's so many different arms to it or facets to it. And no one person is an expert in any, in all of it. Right. And so you, it's, you're really dividing your trust amongst the people that you don't actually know. You don't know them. You have no idea. Um, and they really, it is about the dollar. The it, the bottom line is the dollar. Um, that is why series don't get continued. Mm-hmm. You know, book series, 
People will ask, like, is there going to be a seventh Ferrara? And I'm hoping that we can do a seventh Ferrara family mystery because I really would like to. I have an idea for something that could wrap it up very nicely if that's the end. Though the sixth book, um, Murder at the Mistletoe Ball, does put a little bit of a of a ribbon on it. You know, it's not a beautiful bow, but it's a ribbon. It's it, it's a it's, yeah. it's closed. Um, yeah, my uh, my magical dressmaking series, which was with Penguin. It ended after book six and it had a little ribbon, but not a beautiful bow, but I got the rights back and I've been able to continue it, which has been great, but it took a long time, a lot of years. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that I will entertain down the road. If it doesn't go, we'll see what happens. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you always, as a writer, there are some, you do want to move on to different series. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I, um, I honestly don't know how many books, what's the longest number of books, the most books you have in one series? Right now, I have eight in that particular series, and then I have eight in my bread shop series, so that those are the most. Oh. I have a friend who has 12 in a series, and it ended after that, and she just said, you know, that was that was pretty long. It was pretty hard yeah. to keep going with, a, with an arc. You have to create a new arc. You, you know, do. You do. Cover the series. You know, and, and then you have to hope that the readers are going to go along for the ride, because I've always right. said, and I, I've asked a lot of them at these cozy cons, they really do read the books for the characters and the situations, the, right. the locations. The murder is, you know, ancillary. There are the people who read it because they are an amateur sleuth and they want to try to figure it out. And that's great. But because of the limitations of a cozy, the the death is off page, typically, you know, almost always. Um, there's no gore. There's no real you don't get gritty. There are limitations on how many types of murder there can be and how many scenarios. Happy murder. I'm telling you. What was that? <laughs> Happy murder. Happy murder. Exactly. Exactly. I said one character in the Ferraris, I said, because it's tranquility, you know, pretty name. And they're like, ever since you came here, the town's turned into a hotbed for homicide. <laughs> and it's true. It, it's like, who would live in Cabot Cove with Jessica Fletcher? Exactly. The right. Chances yeah. of dying, like in the first week, are pretty high. So yeah. you do. Hotbed for Homicide, that's a pretty great title for a book, I must yeah, say. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe it's out there, but uh, don't steal it. I'm going to use it. <laughs> <laughs> I usually tell friends if I, if I hear something, if it's another writer, I'm like, I give you three months. You can use it. If you don't, it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> you have it for a while but um yeah I, I have like i said the six i i don't know how much further i could really go with them to be very honest yeah, like i said though yeah. i do have one almost like going back to knots landing it's almost like the special reunion episode you know back to the mm-hmm. cul-de-sac i would like to go back one more time do what i want to do and and be done with it um, and then who knows, you know, in 10 years, you may want to do something, um, with it. Um, and when you write it, when you start a series, do you have an end goal in mind? Like where you want the character to wind up? Um, it depends on the series The my Harlow or my, um, Pippin Lane Hawthorne, my book magic series. That's not really cozy. It's, um, She's a bibliomancer. It has a much different type of a storytelling um, process and arc, but it has a few cozy elements. That one I knew where she needed to end up because there was a 2,000-year-old Irish curse and there were deities and there's this, you know, these elements that I knew she needed to get through. So 
I had it somewhat mapped out in terms of understanding the ending with the cozies. I know not at all. Other than, you know, there's going to be some romantic arc of some sort. I tend to do mine differently. So they're never a a police officer or law enforcement. That's never the, the character, the guy, the male character. Um, But, you know, but there is going to be some sort of romantic arc. I have a lot of female relationships, family relationships. So I know that those are going to develop. But other than that, no. Yeah, that's the same. I, um, you know, it's inevitable that Bria will find love again. Um, But very interestingly, interestingly, I thought there was going to be a love triangle with two male characters starting in the first book. And it turned out to Mm -hmm. be a different man than I thought that it was going to be. And now that man has taken on a different role in her life. So she's Mm -hmm. getting closer to love, but I really haven't decided yet if that's going to be the guy for her or if somebody else, because she also has her best girlfriend, Rosalie, there's the mother-in-law that she has a relationship with. <clears throat> Excuse me. Imperia Bartolucci, which I love that name. Because it just tells mm-hmm. you everything you need to know. About yeah, her. that's the power of a name, right? right? And she has her sister and they're all the girlfriends in town and stuff in the village. Um, so that's more important, you know, reestablishing her life as um, a local, a locale, um, instead of a tourista. Um, See, and and I think that makes your series so much more interesting. You know, I read kind of widely. I think you said that in your biography that you read very eclectically, and and I do too. And I like to have, um, you know, just a lot from the book. I want to experience a lot of emotion. I want to learn stuff. I always have history in mind. I hated history in high school, but I am fascinated by it now. And so, all of my books have some historical element or some history element. Um, you know, my my Harlow Cassidy in the dressmaking series, she's a descendant of Butch Cassidy with an alternate history of Butch. Oh, how cool. And you know, just to tie all of that stuff in, I think that that makes it really interesting and a little bit different and offers the reader something more. And I think that's what you're doing, too. It's not just this, oh, here's the formula and you're writing this cozy mystery. It's right. I'm taking this cozy mystery a little further. Oh, thank you. Yes, yes. That's exactly what I'm trying to do. I really, you know, I was saying I'm really trying to push the boundaries a little bit mm-hmm. where yeah. it is, um, you know, she's a 32-year-old widow with an eight-year-old boy. That is serious. Regardless mm-hmm. if she has a very strong, supportive family. Um, but like I, I just try to get into her mind a little bit and the minds of the people around her. And, and, you know, these things come up as you're writing them. Like I had her mother say as a memory, um, you can't live with us. You can't come with your son because your son needs to know that you're the mother and you need to know that you can rise above this challenge We're we're, we're here, but we're not the, the solution. We're a safety, yeah. but you have to establish your life now with your son. It's different. See, that's very powerful. And you can't take a a woman and a child who have lost the husband and father and make it light and turn it into, oh, it's so easy. And, and here's a new yeah. romance and all of that is in the past. You know, this is this is your approach. You need something based on reality and with real emotions. You know, I think it's interesting. So, so many times in Cozy's 
the the death part of the murder is often overlooked. You know, where is the funeral? Where is the grief? Where is the people who missed this person? You know, where is all of that? Yes. And it's sometimes it's not in there, and but but it should be, I think. Oh, I agree with you very wholeheartedly. And with the Ferrara family and with Bria, they're Italian, so they're Catholic. So I was raised Catholic. Um, we would, that can be another discussion, but, you know, we all have our, you know, our own religious, spiritual beliefs, non-beliefs, whatever they might be. But for these characters, they carry rosary beads with them and they say them and they say a prayer and they talk to God or whoever you think is listening. Um, and that was something that I didn't even question to put in the books. Like I didn't even research, ooh, do people really talk about this in a cozy mystery? These characters do. So if you want to read about Italian-American women, I mean, I have a priest, you know, Father Sal, who everybody loves, and I was going to write him out after the first book. I actually uh, included something that he was close to retirement and they resonated with him because he truly is the type of priest that I grew up with, you know, super fancy shoes, always drinking a bottle of wine, always having, you know, great food, the glass, you know, the priests were totally different from the nuns. It was just very, very different. Um, so Father Sal is sort of the nemesis of Helen, who used to be the nun. Um, they have a love-hate relationship. But um, I always said that Helen left the convent and nobody knew why and she wouldn't talk about it. I didn't know why. In the fourth book, Murder at Veronica's Diner, it comes out why. And Father Sal is involved. And, you know, you get these moments like, oh, oh, that's good. That's a good, solid, deeply emotional reason. It's not superficial. And it makes you look at the character. Oh, that's why she's the way she is. And, you get more- and and is that something you feel like you could have created about her before you knew her? Because yeah. when I'm with my um, Murder in Devil's Cove, my book magic series that's on the Outer Banks with the Bibliomancer and the Irish Curse and all of that, I had a loose understanding of things I needed to happen, but I had so many aha moments mm-hmm. with each book. And the farther I got into the series, there's four books in that series and it's complete. You know, I would do a little research and then dig a little deeper and I'd be in this rabbit hole. But then it was like explosion, like, oh my God, I could never in a thousand years have planned that ahead of time. Agree, agree. It was an aha moment with Helen. Um, there was an aha moment with Carmela because the the aunt Carmela dies at the, we don't even know her really. She's the one, that's how Alberta inherits the house and all the money. But in true Italian fashion, she can't give any of the money away for a year because the Italian, well, well, I'm not Italians, but any family person, they're going to be like, oh, I inherited 3 million. Okay. 50,000 goes to my niece, Jennifer. Uh, you know, they give it away. And Carmela stipulated that she couldn't give anything away. And I had no idea why she had all this money or why she left it to Alberta until book three. Murder and Icicle Lodge. So each book, the plot that percolated and then started circulating in my head opened up these little doors to the characters, souls, hearts, whatever you believe they have. Um, And 
I learned more about them. And, you know, when you're writing, when you say that you have a 65-year-old widow who did not have a great marriage, there's sadness there. Mm -hmm. There's, he wasn't horrible. It wasn't a horrible life by any means. She's estranged from her daughter, Lisa Marie, for a good 10 years. And I don't address that. It's just the dark cloud. So you have this really great, so again, going back to what you said, it can't all be sunshine and light because I'm creating this character who hasn't talked to her daughter in 10 years. That's huge. Mm -hmm. And yeah. some, um, I can easily see a mother saying, horrible, I would never do that. You don't know. Mm -hmm. Your daughter may just not want to talk to you. Well, yeah, it might not be up to you. Exactly. So I had yeah. to add that in. And you can't do it word for word. It can't be on every page. But... At points through the book, and there was a, I think there's a very, and I glossed over it on the first draft of this, of Murder in an Italian Cafe, the second book, there's a moment, just like you said, um, you you speed over the, the real life moments. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my word. And then when I went into it, I was like, wow, that is very real. And I'm very curious how um, primarily women will respond to the moment because um, it's a, it's a female moment. Yeah. And I think that those are the things, those are the moments and those are the things that we tackle that elevate a book beyond the genre that it's in. And we're doing more, not to build ourselves up, but <laughs> we're doing more than just pumping out books oh, right and that was one of the reasons i'm like i really have no interest um in churning out just one mystery after the other after the other right. especially with the limitations there there's only so much you can do it's very very restrictive for me and i think for you as well it's the character deepening mm -hmm. of the character how how can we really make this an emotional roller coaster? How can we really make this exciting for the reader and mm -hmm. um, tap into those moments that, oh, I've never read this in a cozy mystery before. Right. How interesting. Right. And yeah. you might broaden your your readers, your the scope of who wants to read the book. Um, mm -hmm. and, and all that being said, you know, the the traditional cozy mystery, they're great. It's a certain mm -hmm. type of book. Um, mm -hmm. And sometimes you just want, you know, some steak with your chicken. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, there's millions of readers out there and not every book is going to appeal to every reader. I, I tried to do the quick turnaround because I was, I had so many friends that were making it, you know, great money in indie. And I'm like, here I am, you know, plodding along without the, the, the big paycheck. Right. And I'm like, well, I can do that. I can do that. No, I can't do yeah. that. I, I, that is not the way my brain works. Right. It is not the way I want to write is not, you know, and nothing against the books that other people are Absolutely. writing. It's just not what I do. Correct. And I'm not able to do that. My books are different yeah. than, than, you know, I mean, they're just different. They might, there might be crossover readers sure, for sure. sure, but they're different. It's like, you know, to entertain versus to entertain plus, you know, explore something right. emotionally or, or some, some depth in, in relationships or, you know, whatever it is. Right. So it's just, you have to know 
what your goal is and what you want to write and how you want to reach readers and how you want to touch readers too. Yeah, it's like everything else. Every step of the way, you know, everybody wants to make a lot of money. You know, we really do. It's 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 the world. You you, you mm-hmm. because you if you don't make the money, you can't continue doing what you're doing. You know, there's exactly. a reason I'm not a full time writer at the moment because I, I would like to have a paycheck. Um, but it goes back to you have to know what you want to do, and um, mm-hmm. I. I, I lost my train of thought because I got a little too excited. <laughs> I was going <laughs> to say something. That in, enjoying what you do too. Because if you stop enjoying it, like for me, that was not an enjoyable process to try and just write a book for the sake of writing oh, a book absolutely. versus exploring characters and, and exploring this, you know, dynamic that I've created or this history that I've thrown it, whatever it is, you know, I have to enjoy the process. And when you stop enjoying the process, I mean, you shouldn't be doing it. You know, I was a public school teacher. You know, how many teachers out there seem to really hate kids? And I'm like, well, why are you a teacher? You know, can you stop liking what you do? You shouldn't do it anymore. I agree. That's a tough job. What I was going to say was when you're starting to write what you really need to understand, it is a solitary endeavor. You are on your own. You do all of this, you know, yeah, you can have a writing group if you want, if you have the time in your week or your month, but you are doing it alone. So if you don't have the joy of it and the love for it and just the passion to do it without the paycheck in the beginning, then you're never going to do it. Because I sometimes I will be editing a book and I'm like, oh, my God, this is a big, you know, it's like 350 pages. It's a Mm -hmm. lot of that's a lot of words. And I I just clocked um, I, I I. looked at how many words and 96,000 words. Oh, wow. That's pretty hefty. Yeah, yeah. It's a hefty lift, as we said. Yeah. Um, well, I was, I, as I said yeah, uh, earlier, I'm doing book covers now, creating book covers. I have this whole branch of writer spark, but, uh, you know, I, I kind of organize my day, right? So I do the things I have to do and then I write my word count, whatever that is, whatever project right. I'm working on, you know, finish the scene, write a new scene. And then I get to do the other fun stuff that I, you know, right now that's covers. Um, but I, you know, I was working last night on a cover and it was, I don't know, nine 30, my son who's home for the year came in from work and he's like, you're just always working. You probably work like 14, 15 hours a day. And I was thinking, yeah, but I love it, you know, but I love what I'm every part of it. I love. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm just making a cover here. (laughs) But he's like, you're working, you're working. But, you know, and that's what it is, is a very, you don't just write it and send it and let somebody like the magical book elves, you know, create it all for you. It doesn't work right, that right. way. And, mm-hmm. um, and again, if you don't love the craft of writing enough to give it a rewrite and really look at your work objectively and say, oh, that stinks. Because that's what I did. I was like, I tried in this, in the second book, I thought I was going to be very clever um, I thought it was going to be very clever and tell the story in a different way. And that didn't work out for this story, but I will do it in another one. So that was the first misstep. And then I thought, oh, I'm going to do this sort of subplot and begin with, and I was like, no, because the murder took forever to get to. So I, but it were, you know, it helped make the book better. But if you mm-hmm. don't have, I always call it the three D's, determination, discipline, and dedication. You got to be determined to become a writer and to write a book. 
You have to be disciplined enough to carve out the time in whatever your schedule is to actually write it. And you have to be dedicated to go back and do the rewrites and to do whatever you need to do in order to make that book as good as it can be. It's never going to be perfect. That word doesn't exist. As you know, it's never. Because even when you publish a book, you're like, oh, I meant to just tweak that line and sometimes it's literally a word it's a word and it just digs into your brain and you're just like oh exactly and it's like oh and i know about you but i know there are a couple words i use too often and i go through and i'm like oh my i clearly i'm obsessed with the word clearly i don't know why (laughs) but i i have to usually take out 80% 80% of the clearlies in all of my books. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. I think we all have that. <laughs> Everyone's got a word. I think, um, oh God, I'm going to remember it. I'm not going to remember it. Stephanie, who did the Twilight series. Oh, Meyer. Stephanie Meyer. I can't remember what the word is, but someone told me about it and she truly uses it in every chapter. It's And, it's, and once you see it, you can't unsee it, right? Absolutely. Oh my <laughs> God. Like, it's And it's not a simple word. It's like disingenuous or it's, it's like that type of a word. I can't remember what it is. If I do, I'll email it to you. But um, yeah. And I didn't read, I just read her book briefly to um, see if my friend was right. And I was like, oh my God, it, it's, it's on every page. It's, it's so sprinkled in throughout. And I'm surprised that an editor didn't, um, because it's what, one of the first things I learned from a, a proofreader, Echo, when you echo the mm-hmm. same word. Um, typically right. it's if you're using it within the same few lines, but they have you know called out as like, you use this adjective quite a bit. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, consider, well, how do they put it? Consider an alternative or consider, yes. consider another <laughs> word choice, which is a nice way to say, delete and, and come up with something different or better. <laughs> <laughs> they're, yeah. they're very, you know, th- uh, they're, they're very kind. They're very kind. Yeah. Yeah, they are. They are. <laughs> Probably inside they're going again. Again, oh another God. clearly. But but I, <laughs> you know, and then you learn, you know, you're, you're hopefully this will be my 14th book. So hopefully it's better than my first. Mm-hmm. You know, it, not mm-hmm. so much, maybe not in the plot because it's very different, but in the storytelling, in the, in the arc, in the now, in the journey, um, in the clarity yeah, that's interesting that you say that because my first series was the Lola Cruz PI series. She's a Latina detective. My husband's a first Mex- uh, first generation Mexican-American, and she was very much created so that my daughter, I have four boys and one girl, that my daughter would have somebody to oh, relate to. Right. She won't read it now because she's 23 and there's a little bit of sex in there, you know, just like tension. And she's like, mom, <laughs> mom, no. Come on. But, <laughs> but you know, I'm continuing that. That's another one I got the rights back oh, to. Cool. And so uh, book six, Lola Baby is coming out. And I wrote books four and five several years ago. So my writing skill, after 35 books, my writing skill wow. has improved significantly. You know, I've grown as a writer, which I think, I hope that we all do, right? That we need to grow in our craft. So I have to really figure out how, you know, not that I was a bad writer then, no, I, no, I don't like, think I was, but it's like bridging that. Yeah. And I've had people comment, oh, this story was a lot 
uh, meatier, you know, than her earlier <laughs> books in this series, you know, so I have to really still tap into Lola's voice and make sure that I'm bringing that Lola magic, right. even though my writing has evolved. It's, it's a challenge. It is because someone like, if they never read it, they're going to start from number one. Right. And oh, great. And they're not going to, I mean, I might look at the copyright date sometimes, but no, you just want to make sure it's the first one in the series. And then they're going to get right. to book five and say, or what is this book now? The, uh, six is coming like, out. Yeah. Oh, it was this ghost written? Is this somebody else? Yeah. You don't pay attention and link them yeah. together. It's true. It's true. Um, I did that. I de- made a deliberate choice. And, you know, you're more successful sometimes than others. But to make the Bria Bartolucci series have a slightly... Um, I, in the way I describe it, it's a, a slightly more adult tone than the mm-hmm. family, even though mm-hmm. she and Rosalie, um, go through some funny things together because, you know, it, it isn't always dark. And it's third person. Correct. Right. Which is unusual for a cozy too. My, my, um, book magic series on the Outer Banks with the Bibliomancer, that is third person also. That automatically takes it a little step away yeah. from that traditional cozy also. Yeah. It's, I can't remember the exact phrase because I did take this one, uh, I took this one, um, writing class at Gotham Writers Workshop, which I recommend to anybody. They have some really great things. A little sidebar. The one thing that they do in any, every book critique, um, group I think should do this. You, um, if you're the writer, you submit your work, you cannot respond to anyone's comments at all. And every person has to say a pro and a con about the writing. Mm, um, mm-hmm. And it forces you to listen. And it you in your mind, be aware of how many times you say, oh, that's what I meant. Doesn't matter. You didn't write it. So it's not yeah. on the page. And it really, for me anyway, it was, it was kind of very illuminating. It was, it was, it was great. But uh, it's like third person, the distance, what do they call that? The distance from the narrator to the protagonist's mm-hmm. mind is, mm-hmm. is close. It's not that mm-hmm. distant. Um, right. You have deep point of view. Yes. So you're in, yeah. And I did that actually with the Ferraris because originally it was going to be told through the eyes of Alberta and her granddaughter, Jinx. It was the two of them. As the series progressed, Alberta steps to the forefront. Um, Mm -hmm. Jinx was always there a very close second, but nothing on the page was seen through eyes other than Alberta's or Jinx. Primarily Alberta's. Um, And that limits you as well, which was good. It was fine. Um, But I didn't want to do... One day I'll do the first person. I didn't think... Because what I wanted to do with this Positano series, I wanted to have Positano as a character. Yeah, like Atlanta and Gone with the Wind. Exactly. Yes, I'm just like Gone with the Wind. Compare those two. Um, (laughs) So I didn't, so I wanted to step back and I really wanted to be able to um, include, like you do, the history of Positano, the locations, Mm -hmm. almost um, let the geography speak for itself. And you, you could do that as a first person, of course, but then it becomes a little bit like a history class because that person has to tell you everything. So that's why I did. That's why I chose the third person. Yeah. Well, Michael, we have gone really, really long. (laughs) 
And I'm not sure we we talked maybe for five minutes about our topic. <laughs> I know, I know, right? Well, any you know, agenting, you know, it, it's all out there on the internet for you. Be careful. Yeah. Um, know when you need an agent as opposed to when you want an agent. Make sure you're ready for it. Make sure that you've done your homework. Don't automatically go with the first person who wants you because that is the impudence that's like oh this person loves me of course they love you they're trying to sell and nobody else ever will oh my god exactly no one's ever going to love me well they may not they may not but that doesn't mean that this person is right for you um yeah. so um and then you could always do a trial basis you could always do let's see how this works out um i've never I don't know about you, but I never signed anything formal with them. Oh, another, a few other tips. If an agent or anyone, if an agent ever asks you for money up front, they're not legitimate. So, right. so, and, and call them on it, uh, report them, you're done. Um, I don't know who you'd report them to, but that's not the way it works. They only make money when you get a check. Um, mm -hmm. It's um, literary agents are 15% now. Um you might be able to negotiate that down to 10 if it's an individual person, probably not. Um, mm -hmm. And the reason it's the industry standard, yeah, it's yeah. industry standard. And it's because um, they're getting, you know, you're not paying for the proofreader. You're not paying for the copy editor. You're not paying for the artwork, you know, because they have a link to the publisher, they've sold it. So it kind of works mm -hmm. out in the wash. Um, but you got to make sure that they're negotiating the contract and always don't just accept what they've done. If they say it's ready for signature and you don't see a red line and you don't see markups and you don't see what they've added to it, you get on the phone, you, well, you go through the contract, read it yourself, even if you don't understand it. The first couple mm -hmm. times, have a, a lawyer friend who's going to do it for free. Have a friend who's a, a real estate person who's done a negotiation, who's seen a contract, anybody that you can get to actually mm -hmm. look at it because you don't know that agent may be really bad at negotiating and may simply accept the first thing that comes through. Right and, right. and okay, yeah, someone's offering you money for your book. That's wonderful. That's really great. You might be able to get 5,000 more, 2,000 mm -hmm. more. You might be able to, you, you want to know what are the holdback. You need to know that mm -hmm. phrase, the reserve. What rights do you maintain? What are you giving away? How many books do they want? Are you getting more money for the second book? You got to read the whole thing. You're not going to understand it if you've never read something before. Take your time. Read it over the course of a week. Don't be forced into signing something um, and ask your agent, what did you negotiate? Mm -hmm. What have you gotten better? They may not be able to get anything. They may not. The deal might be good. It may be the solid, especially if you're with... Um, you know, if you're with a middle of the road or a smaller publisher, if that's who's going to do your first book, they may not have the money to do anything more. They may simply say, this is unfortunately all we have to offer. Mm -hmm. And that's fine as long as you understand it. And as long as you agree to it after having some conversation with your agent and it's not just shoved in your face, here, sign. That's right. That's not acceptable. Yeah. And, you know, you learn every time with every contract, with every book that you write, 
you learn, whether it's craft or knowledge or understanding of the industry, whatever. So you just got to be continually open to that. Absolutely. Well, thank you for taking your time to chat with me today. It's been so fun. I love talking with you. Yes, likewise. Thank you so much for including me and um, letting me talk a little bit about myself and, and the industry. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely a pleasure and very informative too. Good luck with- uh, Murder in an Italian village. Yes, with the Brie Bartolucci series. Brie Bartolucci. Yep. Number one. Yeah. Number one. Yeah. Hopefully of several. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I hope so too. Good luck to you. I'm really loving it. It's my interest with the Outer Banks because I've never been. So, oh, it's beautiful. I hear it is like you're on the edge of the world, literally. It's North Carolina, right? Or am I totally wrong? Where is Outer Banks? Yes, it's North Carolina, although it extends into Virginia. But yeah, it's North Carolina. Oh, very cool, very cool. So, um, all right, look forward to that. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you, Murder in Devil's Cove. available wherever books are sold that's right (laughs) thank you so much for listening and spending your time with me today everyone i'm melissa bourbon and this is the writer spark podcast take a moment to visit our website at www.writersparkacademy.com check out our courses our resources and all the content there and i will see you next time until then happy writing